Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Hello and welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, today we're joined by Kelly Weil, our frequent guest host, since uh, host Aswin Soupsang is still off on paternity leave. Now, Kelly, in these days, if you get in an internet fight with someone that gets really heated, they might tell you to go touch grass, by which they mean, uh, you know, sort of get out there, get a life, uh, log off for a little bit. Have you ever experienced this? I have both been told that, and I have personally touched grass. (laughs) Okay, so so, so you're an expert on this. I bring this up because I am reading a new book from anti-Muslim activist, general sort of right-wing fame ball. Laura Loomer, that is just like the ultimate argument in favor of touching grass forever, logging off for good. Um, so so Laura Loomer, uh, you know, people may remember her as the person who changed her, chained herself to Twitter headquarters uh, with a sort of a Hitler era Jewish star on her arm. So she has this new book and, you know, it came out on Tuesday. So I've been working my way through it. And it is just basically all about how getting banned from Twitter is like this like psychic journey that just wrecked her. I mean, it should be a an objectively like life improving development, right? If you're off Twitter, you're free. You are liberated. Go touch grass. So, so, so here, you know, if I can read you a couple quotes here. I mean, in fact, it, it, we're talking here about her getting banned from Twitter. Quote: It affected me so much that my doctor says I developed post traumatic stress disorder from my no. experience. I get treatment for the PTSD I've developed as a result of being silenced by big tech and viciously defamed by the media for years on end. Now, you might say. Wow. Getting post-traumatic stress disorder because you were banned from Twitter? That seems unlikely. Uh, I I should say she also says she developed insomnia. But she was also banned, you know, she often points to being banned from Uber Eats. She's the most banned woman in America. Now, she did this because she was saying that there should be uh, Uber where Muslims can't drive. And so Uber kind of banned her from the whole platform. But here's her quote about Uber Eats, which is kind of like haunting her. It's the Uber Eats ban that stings the most. Uber Eats just won't get out of my head. Uber Eats! This is the voice I cannot silence. <laughs> and I mean, you've got so many other meal delivery options. You've got your Grubhubs and Seamless. You could even learn to cook. I mean, listen, 
right. right. Well, that's a big one is is like I'm banned from Uber Eats and so I will starve. And, you know, we don't quite live in, in that Travis Kalanick dystopia yet. And to be clear to people, I mean, this is not a satirical book. This is supposed to be a very serious book. You know, if I could just talk about one more line from the book on a sort of a different topic. She's in college and she's, uh, you know, she's claiming she's she's this like anti-Muslim activist. And she's really she claims this Catholic university in Florida has just been taken over by radical Islam, which seems a bit of a stretch to me. And she's she's alone in a classroom with a Muslim student. And she claims that now conveniently there's no witnesses. She claims he turns to her apropos of nothing and says with a totally flat affect, America deserved 9-11. <laughs> then she's like, and then the university wouldn't do anything about it. And it's like, well, it kind of sounds like you made it up. This kind of sounds like this is like the worldview you'd get if you only read conservative post 9-11 like newspaper comics. That's the sole informing voice here. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So, you know, this is sort of just another, you know, Fever Dreams book corner. You know, some people get excited for the new Jonathan Franz and they get, oh, I'm going to get the Sally Rooney bucket hat. Here, I have been waiting eagerly for the the, the Laura Loomer book and it has not disappointed. Because I love uh, catty publishing drama. And so I heard a few years ago that she was like shopping this book around and getting rejected. I'm not sure exactly the details on that. But when I heard she did get published, I looked up the publisher and it looks like she landed at Bombardier Books. And I have to read this little excerpt from an article about them a couple of years ago when they had a merger. Titles to be published under the Bombardier label include Confessions of an Islamophobe by Robert Spencer, who is, as he says, an Islamophobe who literally helped inspire the um, Norwegian mass murderer and, quote, The Case Against BDS by Alan Dershowitz. So, you know, outstanding company right there. <laughs> Well, okay. Now, now, Kelly. Speaking of uh, outlandish characters uh, from the right, doing really just behaving sort of bizarrely out in the real world. Are you up on Dennis Prager? Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a real Prager head here. Yeah, well, you graduated a uh, cum laude from Prager U. <laughs> Actually, for the listeners here, Dennis Prager is a talk radio host who I, I believe does around like kind of the lunchtime shift. He's sort of an off-brand Hugh Hewitt, which is like it, it, you know not really a territory you want to be in. Um, you know, he he's probably more famous though more recently as the as the dean of Prager U, the YouTube series where you have people like now compound builder Owen Benjamin, who we mentioned on the podcast. They have people like that. Uh, do videos that are like don't believe the liberal take on um, on healthcare or or what have you, and, and then they they kind of riff for a while on YouTube. But now we have Dennis Prager; he's out deliberately trying to get COVID, and guess what? He succeeded. Congrats, Dennis. Can I just say I am I am a total truther on his uh, deliberately getting COVID thing. It's like, yeah, man, I, I meant to fail the test. I was sticking it to the man. Uh, I'm not here for this. I, I got COVID on purpose. You know, that's a great point. I mean, I, we are sort of at, at so many cycles of, you know, what they call the, the Herman Cain Award, right? Uh, for people who flout COVID restrictions, don't get the vaccine, and then they get COVID. That we're, we're so many cycles into this this kind of uh, this storyline now that I think Republican figures are getting a little, like, anxious about it, and they don't want to get owned. And so, like, you have, like, Alan West, who only announced that he had COVID after he had already, you know, been on a bunch of cycles of Regeneron. And so now we have Dennis Prager, who's saying, actually, getting COVID rocks. So our colleague, Justin Rorlick at The Daily Beast, 
interviewed Prager about this. Uh, and Prager claims he was, you know, you have in HBO's True Blood, you had guys who were desperate to become vampires, right? And they would sort of hang around vampires. Also, we see this in what we do in the shadows. Well, Dennis Prager is kind of like that, but for COVID. He's kind of like a COVID groupie. He wants to find people who have COVID and maybe they'll give it to him. So, <laughs> you know, yesterday on or one day on his show, he's saying... And I hugged strangers in the thousands, literally in the thousands, while not being inoculated. And it was a gamble based on knowledge, not based on being a gambler. I am not a gambler, and I certainly don't gamble with my health. But I so believe science and the science of ivermectin, not the lies of the New York Times. Right. So so, so in the height of the, the HIV epidemic, uh, there was this sort of urban legend of people who were chasers, who were desperate to contract HIV in a sort of sicko way. And that, now we have Dennis Prager, who is is doing the same, uh, a bug chaser for the coronavirus. And he has now been successful. The only, the only metaphor I've got here is Pokemon. When you get the sick Pokemon and you trade it around with all the other Pokemon, that's all I got. He's uh, he's collecting them all in, in pathological sense. <laughs> he's like, I think it's like you get the Pokemon with a, a glitch or something. Uh, right. and, and you know, what's funny about this is Dennis, so Dennis Prager has been going out. He's out in the world, right? And people don't realize that he, you know, he's, he doesn't have a shirt that says, I want to contract COVID. And that, in fact, he thinks contracting COVID rules because, you know, his theory is he's going to build this natural immunity. It's going to be better for him than getting the vaccine. But so, you know, this reporter out in Colorado, Kyle Clark, noted that Dennis Prager, you know, just a few days before announcing his he was positive. He's at an event for this Colorado governor, gubernatorial candidate. He's got his arms around people. He's getting real close. And it's like, hey, did y'all know Dennis Prager was really on the hunt to get COVID? And they said no, that he did not make make his status clear they should consider themselves lucky right because covid is a blessing maybe he gave it to them maybe they can all really just have this shared experience uh you know get that natural immunity <laughs> we'll all get natural immunity yeah i mean it, you know th this brings me back to dennis prager is such a colorful character you know at the height of really at the start of the pandemic i think in april 2020 he had this he was trying to get people to chill out he said you know catching a virus isn't so bad you know even the coronavirus and so he related this sort of deranged anecdote at the time where he said if he drops a, a utensil on the floor at a restaurant and then they, the waiter tries to give him a new one, he's like, no, I want to eat with the dirty fork. So he says, if I'm at a restaurant and my fork or knife falls, I pick it up and use it. They rush over to give me a new one. And my view is there's no reason to come over. The fork fell on the floor. What did it pick up? Diphtheria? And it like this is an odd guy, you know, and and it seems like he's going for the the Mr. Burns like uh, contract every disease so they cancel one another out. I think it's so funny because COVID has really like sort of shook shook out the people with very weird cleanliness habits, right? So when it first came out that you had to wash your hands after using the bathroom. There were all the people who were like, what? For how many minutes should I wash my hands? Is, is this how you do it? And it's like, what were you doing before this? And clearly it's catching diphtheria from a, a fork on the floor. Oh, I, I got to count myself among the, the pig pen types there. I, I definitely was. Uh, I, I, it, they were like, well, well, we all know how to do the surgical hand wash. I'm like, what's going on here? I do think it's 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 revealed some people who certainly have some interesting takes on germ theory. So, you know, Dennis Prager, recover soon, buddy. The, the larger import here, I think, 
It's the growing obsession on the right with natural immunity. And in particular, the idea that if you're naturally immune, you know, the government should not make you get the vaccine. Rather than be than a vaccine mandate, they think the, mu- the much less invasive thing is, I don't know, the government's going to do a blood test on everyone. So, yeah, I mean, this is Dennis Prager. Uh, and, you know, he he claims he's he's got it. And, you know, he had his Regeneron ready to go. I love it. I mean, these people say, oh, I'm not going to put an experimental vaccine in me. And they use Regeneron, which is way newer, way more experimental. And uh, way more expensive. Yeah, it, it, it really is a bizarre program. It's like, well, rather than everyone get the vaccine, we have a simple solution. Everyone will go hug everybody at the gubernatorial campaign events. And we'll hug Dennis Prager and and he'll uh, he'll bring us all into his, his sort of vampire brood. <laughs> okay, Kelly. So, you know, this is a this is a podcast where we like to keep up with the the audits going on and, and audit mania spreading across the country. Who can delegitimize America's electoral processes the most effectively? You've been tracking developments of audits outside of Arizona. What's going on? Right. So for listeners catching up, the Arizona audit lasted months, m- months longer than it was supposed to, ended up costing millions in taxpayer dollars only for auditors to confirm that, yes, Joe Biden won in Arizona. But those audit efforts are spreading. They're going to other states, including Pennsylvania, Texas, where Trump actually won, and Michigan. And right now, Michigan is my favorite audit because the state and some counties have already done really, really extensive audits on their own that confirmed again that Joe Biden won Michigan in 2020. And Michigan is funny because unlike Arizona, where it was really just a, it was a line call for Biden. Biden won Michigan really handily. Like it's it's not even close. But this is the uh, the new rallying cry for the far right in Michigan and across state lines. So so, so I mean, it, it seems like this is bringing a lot of oddballs out of the woodwork. I mean, what's going on in Michigan? Right. So we are starting to have uh, rallies like we saw uh, around the Arizona audit. People using this as kind of a catch-all pro-Trump momentum. Get out the audit energy. So there was a rally earlier this month and a state legislator showed up wearing a QAnon pin. So this is great. You know, you get out, you see your neighbors, you see what they're into. And yeah, these these events totally bring out some of the uh, the more fringe elements in state politics. And I want to be clear here that it's not just a state issue. Well, what I loved about this state rep wearing the QAnon thing is she's like, you know, a lot of times people wear their QAnon stuff and then they're like, whoa, what's this? I just like let alphabet, man. But then she was like, yeah, no, QAnon. It's a it's an intelligence movement of people, you know, taking on uh, on the deep state. You know what? I love the honesty, right? Because everybody knows there's no no winking, right? No people doing their like little 17 code. Just like, come out, say it. You know, we're, we're going to have to deal with this anyway. Obviously, we're, we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, audit mania spread, spread across the country, audit fever at the grassroots level. Uh, what is Trump doing about this, if anything? So Trump is really putting his whole weight behind these audit attempts, including in Michigan. Um, There's reporting that he called Michigan's GOP chair, demanded an audit, um, and he recently endorsed for Michigan Attorney General this wingnut candidate who has been promoting election fraud conspiracy theories since November. Uh, This guy, Matt DiPerno, was involved in a now-dismissed lawsuit that tried to argue that there was election fraud. Matt DiPerno, he's kind of like a second tier uh, Lynn Wood or Sidney Powell to give people some context. That's right. Like a Kalamazoo, Michigan-based Lynn Wood. You know, he does more regional specialties. Um, and, you know, he, he 
you need people on every level of the organization. Um, but yeah, he, uh, he tried suing uh, a county in Michigan uh, on behalf of a client saying that there was voter fraud against Trump. Trump won that county. There were manual recounts showing that Trump won that county, but they used it to go in and take apart the voting machines and generally wreak chaos. And that's who Trump wants for the uh, voice of law and order in Michigan. Okay, so yeah, so I mean, this kind of like way gets us into a hot topic we discussed last week on the podcast, which is sort of the the fixed 2020 bind, right? And so you tell people the election's stolen, and they're like, oh, I guess elections are stolen. I don't really want to vote anymore. So this comes into sharp relief in a Monday story from the New York Times from Jeremy Peters, in which Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has sort of been beating up on the pessimistic uh, audit crowd, uh, then we kind of find out why from this story, which is that Marjorie Taylor Greene had a a poll of voters in her state, excuse me, in her district, that found that 10% of the Repub- of her Republican voters, they just feel like elections don't matter anymore. And 4% say they won't vote again because the elections don't matter because they're so rigged. And then 6% were, were a little unsure on whether their votes mattered. So you're talking about 10% of people, uh, of Republicans in her district, who are potentially just going to be like, who are so depressed by all this voter fraud stuff that they're just not going to vote. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the logical endpoint of some of these arguments, right? saying that the enemy is so sprawling and powerful and they've got their fingers in uh, in Antrim County, Michigan, and they're pulling all the levers that why would you bother uh, contesting that, you know? Just join a militia and uh, do some doomsday prepping, I think is the, the logical output there. So, Will, we talk a lot about QAnon being kind of like a cult. Our guest is an actual expert on the language of cult movements. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this is part of our, our cult series of podcasts. This week, we have Amanda Montel, the author of the uh, very popular new book, Cultish, the Language Fanaticism, in which she looks into the language of cults and cult-like movements. You know, she, she gets really into it with uh, with some cults, as, as well as, uh, you know, what, what she thinks have, uh, have perhaps some cultish characteristics in their language. Talking people really getting sweaty at their CrossFit gyms, or people really pushing tights in their multi-level marketing schemes. So I think it should be an interesting interview. Who can't relate? Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right. Today on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Amanda Montel, the author of Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism. 
Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, in the book you get into, it, it, it's sort of like cults and, and, and things that seem like cults or, or adopt tactics from cults and with a focus on the language. I mean, how would you describe uh, what you mean by cultish? Well, it's a double entendre, a word nerd here, so I had to. The first part of cultish comes from the fact that the word cult actually has no hard and fast definition. Um, when I was researching the book, I was hoping that my understanding of the word cult would become more succinct and clear, but in fact, the opposite occurred. The word cult has become so subjective and sensational and loaded with judgment that a lot of scholars who study new religious movements don't even use it, at least not formally. Uh, the word cult can now be used to describe everything from a deadly, destructive re new religious movement all the way to a popular makeup brand. Um, and this reflects our culture's very fraught relationship with community and identity and meaning and ritual. Um, so the first meaning behind cultish is that while we may not agree that Heaven's Gate and CrossFit are both full-blown cults, we can at the very least agree that they are cultish. Uh, and the second part of that double entendre there is the idea that all of the verbal elements that I describe in this book, um, all of the linguistic techniques that cultish leaders from Jim Jones to Jeff Bezos use to influence their followings make up this language of cultish, like English or Spanish or Swedish, but cultish. You know, we talk a lot about cults here on Fever Dreams, and I know on a lot of other podcasts and documentaries and books, what is so fascinating um, to us about these stories of cult-ish groups? Well, you know, I, like many people, have binged multiple cult documentaries, podcasts, and the like. And I always thought, like, is there something wrong with me? Is there some sort of, like, twisted voyeur living deep within my soul that's inexplicably <laughs> attracted to darkness? But I think what's going on is really a form of, of rubbernecking, you know? Like, when you pass a car accident and your amygdala starts firing like mad because it's trying to determine whether or not this tragedy is a threat to you. Um, and those signals fire even when we receive news of a tragedy, read a headline, watch a documentary. So I think on some level when we watch um, this, this content, we're trying to figure out whether or not these cults are a direct danger to us. Um, and we do a lot of mental gymnastics to tell ourselves, no, I would never wind up in a cultish group. Um, but my argument is that cultish influence imbues spaces we might not traditionally think of as cults, and none of us are truly above it. Well, so you talk about, you know, the, the language tactics of cults that are borrowed by other groups. You know, if you could get into what are some examples of that? Um, well, there are myriad language tactics that I talk about all throughout the book. Um, one of them that I'm asked about most frequently is the idea of a thought terminating cliche. So this is a phrase that was coined in the early 60s by a psychologist named Robert J. Lifton. And it describes a sort of stock expression that's easily memorized, easily repeated, and aimed at shutting down independent thinking or questioning. So scrutiny is the enemy to any cultish group. Cult leaders need conformity um, in order to exert control, maintain control. And so whenever anyone expresses a wrinkle in their plan or their system, um, any kind of pushback, they're going to need a repertoire of these 
without terminating cliches or semantic stop signs to silence that person for a moment. So thought terminating cliches might come in the form of, uh, if anyone's familiar with Nexium, those Nexium documentaries that came out last year, they, they might come in the form of a phrase like, don't let yourself be ruled by fear or dismissing valid concerns and doubts as limiting beliefs. Those are sort of new age thought terminating cliches. But these sorts of phrases also imbue our daily lives. So they might sound like, um, well, everything happens for a reason or it's all in God's plan. Boys will be boys. It is what it is. And these phrases are really effective because they help alleviate cognitive dissonance or that uncomfortable discord you feel when you hold two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time. So if you're in this group that you've been a part of for, let's say, years and you so badly want to believe the promises that were originally made of enlightenment and solutions to the world's most urgent problems, problems, but you're starting to feel these instincts that something is really, really wrong, if you start to express those instincts and are met with a thought-terminating cliche, that will put your cognitive dissonance to bed for a little while, long enough for that cult leader to continue exerting their power. The thought-terminating cliche that comes to mind, I'm sure Will knows, is um, trust the plan. That's what they say in QAnon when things go awry. And I was wondering if you uh, encountered much QAnon language when you were writing this book. I did. Yeah, I do touch on QAnon language, um, conspiritualist language toward the end of the book. Conspirituality, for those unfamiliar with that term, is a very handy little word that describes um, the marriage of new age ideas with conspiratorial ideas, which is a marriage that has become increasingly popular over the past 10 years or so, and especially over the past couple of years. Um, the idea that we're on the brink of a sort of paradigm shift, and also that there there are dark forces controlling the socio-political order. So it's a sort of QAnon offshoot. Um, thanks to the internet and algorithms, there are you know, so many different denominations of QAnon now, um, if you will. So there's a version of QAnon for anyone who holds conspiratorial beliefs now. But yes, I did come across a lot of QAnon to conspirituality rhetoric while researching the book. Another thought terminating cliche that's used by uh, those circles is, um, well, do your, do your research, or I did my research. Of course, research to them does not involve peer-reviewed studies, but sort of falling down a, a confirmation bias-ridden rabbit hole on YouTube or Reddit um, that confirms, you know, what they already want to believe and dismisses what they don't. So yeah, the Q QAnon language is fascinating because obviously this is a group that convenes not in person on some sort of remote compound, but language on the internet really is their campfire, their assembly ground. It is everything to them. So, you know, there's so many interesting details in this book. You know, one that, that strikes me is you have this anecdote about this woman who was in a cult and she she would see a cockroach and she would react to it in, in not just the negative way. I think a lot of us would react to a cockroach, but in sort of a, a deeper way because of, of how deep her mind was in the cult. Can you explain that story? Sure. Yeah. I'll preface it by saying that the explanation that prevailing wisdom in the media tend to give for why people wind up doing these wild and crazy things is they were brainwashed. These people were mind controlled. But brainwashing is nothing but a metaphor. It's not a real or testable phenomenon. It doesn't meet the criteria for the scientific method. You can't prove that brainwashing doesn't exist. It totally discounts our abilities to think for ourselves. Um, so what's really going on are these methods of conversion and conditioning and coercion that have a whole 
whole hell of a lot to do with language. But yes, this this is the first source that I talked to for the book, the first story that I tell in the book, who was under some pretty intense conditioning. Now, when I talked to this, this woman who was a former follower of the group the Happy Healthy Holy Organization, or 3HO. It's a kundalini yoga cultish group. Um, they own Yogi Tea, the very popular tea brand that I'm sure a lot of listeners have sitting in their cabinets right now. So I that's personally do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Watch out, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> This was sort of, a, you know, I'm telling you, a cultish influence. It's it's even in our kitchen. Yeah, so this was this new age group. And when I spoke to this woman, she seemed completely level-headed, very quick-witted. But at the time, you know, she was under some pretty intense psychological manipulation. And the story that I tell is um, about how a regular English word that she had spoken her whole life was redefined in this group to mean something really emotionally potent in a way that could control her her. Um, and this relates to the cockroach, I promise. But the phrase was old soul. So this is something that a lot of cultish groups do. They will take words that you've been speaking your whole life and they'll deliberately warp their meaning. So that's almost a form of gaslighting when you you know, have been speaking this language fluently your entire life and now you're questioning what the words you speak even mean. So old soul was the word. And that to an everyday English speaker is kind of a compliment. It means someone who's wise beyond their years. But in the 3HO environment, it meant someone who'd been reincarnating life after life after life and could never get it right. They were this old soul. And this phrase could be used as a threat to hold things over people's heads, to um, manipulate them, to control them. And uh, this, this woman was under the impression that a cockroach, whenever you saw a cockroach, that was a person who had once been a member of 3HO and had reincarnated life after life after life, could never get it right, and committed some grave sin that had caused them to finally reincarnate as a cockroach. And if you're a cockroach under this belief system and you die in the presence of someone holy, that means you get to reincarnate higher in your next life. So she once encountered a cockroach who she thought was trying to die in her proximity um, <laughs> and she killed it so that it wouldn't have the honor of doing that. And it sounds wild, but when you're under such intense psychological exploitation, you can not all of a sudden, but after years and years and years, find yourself doing, you know, seemingly inexplicable things like that. It's just a fascinating story. It's, it, you know, she sees it and she's like, ah, he's, you know, he's trying to, to steal my karma or whatever. You know, totally. he sees me as a holy person. What are some of those interesting things you discovered while uh, working on the book? I'm partial to the language of Heaven's Gate. I'm a, I'm a 90s baby. That was a 90s cult suicide. That sounds really morbid. But yeah, I, I was really fascinated by the way that this sort of UFO millenarian cult used language because one of their founding leaders, Marshall Applewhite, was really interested in sci-fi and Star Trek. You know, all these cults, you know, decade after decade, they have a lot of things in common in terms of the ideology. You know, there's a rapture, great awakening, etc. But the the flavor, the aesthetic sort of changes depending on what's going on in the culture. So in the 90s, digital technology was new to a lot of people and was now offering sort of newer solutions, newer answers to the world's oldest questions. You know, how did we get here? Where are we going after we die? You know, what is this all for? And so Marshall Applewhite 
created this really robust vocabulary of sci-fi inspired terms that everyone in the group was supposed to use to put them in this rhetorical headspace where they were already in outer space on this spacecraft floating towards the, the place that was supposed to be the kingdom of heaven in their minds. So they all lived in this mansion together in, in Southern California. And there, um, whenever they were in the mansion, that was referred to as in craft. Whenever they were out in the rest of the world, that was out of craft. The kitchen was known as the Nutrilab. The laundry room was known as the Fiber Lab. Um, everybody was given a, a new name to symbolize their new identity as a member of Heaven's Gate. So everybody was given a name that ended in the suffix Odie, which is thought to be a portmanteau of the cult names of the two lit- leaders, T and Doe. So there was like Andodi, Chakoti, Thurstonodi. I could go on and on, but I, I'm just so fascinated by the relationship between language and thought. Um, and ultimately, you know, we all just believe some version of what we already want to believe. You know, cult leader can't convince you to believe something you are on no level open to. They can only sort of radicalize beliefs that you already hold. Um, and the the Heaven's Gate sort of, you know, imagery really fascinates me. That's why there's a UFO on my book cover. <laughs> you know, it's so funny that they used this sci-fi language to pull people in because when you talk about fanaticism, maybe in a more jokey, lighthearted manner, but a lot of sci-fi fans and a lot of, say, Marvel fans are pretty fanatical about their fandom. Totally. Are there any of the same elements at play keeping people kind of engaged in uh, in fanhood? I definitely think so. Um, I, I only touch on stan culture or super fandom in the book. I talk about it more in depth on my uh, podcast, Sounds Like a Cult. Yes, I, I definitely think that uh, super fans and stans fall somewhere along this cultish spectrum that I often talk about. Obviously, the stakes and consequences of being a, a, a Trekkie are different from being a Heaven's Gate member. Um, but a lot of the techniques uh, that... In- courage, solidarity, and that sense of transcendent purpose are quite similar. And I think especially in the modern day, um, a lot of that fanaticism that maybe in the 60s or 70s would uh, be directed toward a new religious movement are now directed towards celebrities and influencers. And I think that's partially because the boundaries separating business leader, spiritual guru, self-help star, influencer, celebrity, they've become really, really blurred. Like take Elon Musk, for example. He's a a businessman who maybe uh, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago would not have achieved the celebrity status that he has now. But for a number of reasons, including the the loss of trust in the mainstream institutions that are supposed to provide us with support, we now find ourselves turning toward these secular leaders for almost a religious kind of support and guidance. People think that Elon Musk is on this transcendent, enlightened plane. Um, he he really does blur that boundary between like business leader, celebrity influencer, and spiritual guru. And I think a lot of celebrities do that even without intending to. Fanaticism often surrounds these celebrities or pieces of media um, without 
even having one unifying charismatic leader. So, you know, cults don't always take the format that we would imagine. So speaking of, you know, in the book, you talk about groups like uh, CrossFit or multi-level marketing schemes. Uh, I'm curious if you've gotten reaction from many members of these groups, uh, you know, given that you're uh, describing them as cultish. Yeah. So far, the only people who seem upset are Trump supporters. (laughs) Um, They, I, yeah, I talk about Trump like very, very lightly in the book. I, I really barely touch on him, but I touch on him enough to upset people who support him, which, you know, sounds inevitable. But no, I mean, I think my book has sort of a self-selecting readership. uh, And, you know, Scientologists, for example, like wouldn't even really be allowed to read my book because it would be considered black PR by them. And, you know, multi-level marketing recruits, I, I don't know if they even have time to read anything outside of the literature that they're being force fed by their uplines. So no, I, yeah, I haven't gotten as much flack as maybe I, I could have, but I've gotten enough. I'm not, I'm not asking for more. <laughs> Wait, can we go back to how multi-level marketing schemes work as cults? Cause I just finished the LuLaRoe documentary and I'm fascinated by this. We tend to think of MLMs as just these sort of, you know, pyramid schemes in sheep's clothing, these scams that are kind of spoofable. But I think of them as, as much cultier than your average scam. And that's for a number of reasons. First of all, there are these complex, life-consuming organizations with a language and culture all their own. They are helmed by these charismatic leaders that are, like I was saying before, worshipped on the level of a spiritual guru. Um, they have these ideologies that are missionary in character. You're always supposed to be recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. You're never supposed to get out of the headspace that you're in as a member of of one of these organizations. They do some really intense us versus them conditioning. Everyone inside the group is thought to be, you know, an elevated, enlightened person who's, you know, fundamentally patriotic, a better wife, a better mother, serving God even, you know, it's no coincidence that so many MLMs are Christian and Mormon affiliated because their values um, don't just have to do with making more money. They have to do with, you know, improving your life and your afterlife. These MLMs preach the prosperity gospel, you know, the idea that if you achieve monetary success in life, that you are favorable in the eyes of God. Um, They take a lot of values that we Americans are all conditioned to have and sort of take them to an extreme. So ambition, progress, and most of all, meritocracy, the idea that those who succeed really deserve their success and those who don't simply didn't work hard enough. MLMs really gaslight their recruits into thinking that if they don't succeed in this fundamentally doomed predatory pyramid scheme-esque system that it's not the, the organization's fault. It's their fault. They didn't deserve it. They didn't have what it takes. They're oftentimes really separated from everyone else on the outside of these groups. And that makes it really hard to exit. So um, when you start looking at that list of criteria that may make something uh, quite cultish, MLMs tend to check off almost every box. So Amanda, you, you know, one thing that comes up a lot, you know, that I run into is people say like, how do I get my, you know, in my case, how do I get my loved one out of QAnon or, or this kind of like hardcore Trump stuff? I mean, you know, obviously you, your book is so much about the the, the power of this, this kind of language and these language tactics have. I mean, have you run into any advice on how to pull someone out of, uh, you know, this kind of extreme thinking? It's really tricky, really, really hard because 
know, like I was sort of saying before, people are fundamentally going to do what they want. Um, and of course, in a lot of these really destructive groups, they're under intense psychological manipulation. Sometimes it's physically hard to leave, but it's, it's really tough. You can't just like say a magic spell and get someone to snap out of it. I can more easily talk about what not to say <laughs> to um, sure, yeah. a family member that might be involved with a group like QAnon or, or another cult-like group. Uh, well, first of all, you don't want to tell them that they're in a cult. <laughs> as tempting as it might be, no one wants to be told that they're in a cult. It feels extremely judgment-loaded. Uh, it, can, it can even serve as a thought-terminating cliche in and of itself. Well, you're brainwashed. You're in a cult. These, these are two things that just really end conversations because they feel like the other person thinks that they're superior to you. And they really halt com communication because that person on the inside of the group thinks that you're brainwashed. You think that they're brainwashed. It's just not effective. So you don't want to tell someone they're in a cult. You don't want to tell someone that they're brainwashed. Depending on the, the specific group that they're in, you might not want to um, undress their beliefs by citing sources that they've been conditioned to believe are um, invalid. So if someone is in, you know, an anti-vax, conspiritualist, QAnon circle, you know, you're not going to want to present them studies from the NIH because they're going to be like, you don't get it. Like you're brainwashed by the system. Like these doctors are trying to manipulate you. There's a conspiracy and they're going to feel like you just fundamentally don't understand them at all. It's so much easier said than done, but you basically just want to keep this person close to you in whatever way possible. If that feels healthy for you, you know, sometimes you need to, to you know, set a boundary and, and not be super close to them anymore because it's bad for your mental health. But if possible, you just want to have this sort of outside influence on them and just hope that by, you know, poking slight holes in their belief system and keeping them close in whatever way you can, that eventually they will sort of come to their senses and, and come home on their own. And a lot of times that does happen. You know, we have this impression that most people who end up in cults end up dead because so much of the media coverage of cults talks about Jonestown and Heaven's Gate and Love Has Won and these groups that end in these tragedies that are really quite rare. But more often than not, a person does return home they'll experience a great deal of trauma, most likely that they'll have to work through. But most people don't die. Most people are not lost forever. A lot of people do wind up going from one cult to another, kind of like people who go from one abusive relationship to another. So, you know, it, it is it is tricky, but um, just sort of keeping them in your life by, by whatever means possible is, I think, my best piece of advice. And I think a lot of what you've described here is pretty benign in comparison to like a heaven's gate. I was wondering how susceptible this cultish language is to just the average person. How easily could one of us fall down that rabbit hole? It's really tough because we have these ideas in our mind, these myths that the people who wind up in cultish groups are desperate, disturbed, intellectually deficient. But in my research, I found that that wasn't true at all. First of all, why would a cult want someone like that? They want to recruit winners. They want people who are bright and um, have lots of connections and privilege, people who have time, money to burn, people who have you know the energy and resources to spend even when th things turn invariably sour, which they always do. They want people who are incredibly idealistic and service-minded, who believe that solutions to the world's most urgent problems can be found, and that by affiliating with this group or guru, that they can be a part of that change. The 
type of person who winds up in a group like Nexium or even the People's Temple, aka Jonestown, is is not who you might think. Now, that's not to say that just anybody could wind up in a group like that. That's not true either. There is a really complex amalgam of factors that goes into what might make someone more susceptible to this promise of a utopia. But it's, it's not a lack of intelligence. It's not desperation. There are a number of factors that I talk about in the book, sort of, you know, life, life experiences, behavioral economics, things. If you've had training in the scientific method, higher education levels, that tends to protect you at least against fraud. But there are a lot of really bright people who wind up in, in super destructive cults. So that's not necessarily the case either. Um, I mean, I haven't mentioned yet that Part of the reason why I'm interested in cults is because my dad spent his teenage years in one. Uh, that was a group called Synanon, which was this socialist utopia that was founded in the 60s. And, and my dad joined in 1969 against his will. He was only 14. But my dad's parents were, were incredibly smart. And so it's, you know, it's a real head scratcher. Um, but I think, you know, for me in my research, what I found is that the, the Achilles heel, the, the fatal flaw is really this idealism, this overabundance of optimism that I described before. And um, that optimism is, is not going to come to you know, the most downtrodden. In, in a way, it, it is a quality that the most privileged of us, among us might have. But yeah, not, not just everyone is, it can end up in, in a cult. So you don't have to be too paranoid. <laughs> Great. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Again, the book is called Cultish and it's out now. Uh, Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you. And finally, we have Fresh Hell. Well, this is really fresh hell because this is someone who I know you monitor very closely on Telegram and now they're making an offline debut. What's going on there? Yeah, so you know, this is fresh hell. This is where we bring you a glimpse of our of our future and maybe it's a place you like, maybe it's a a, a place you don't want to be. But in this case, you know, we're talking about the rise of of the QAnon candidate. And I don't mean, you know, oh, we've had people who believe in QAnon before, right? We've had uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, we've had uh, Lauren Boebert, who promoted QAnon. But no, I'm talking like literally the guy who allegedly runs QAnon. Ron Watkins, uh, Fever Dreams listeners may know if, if you watch the HBO documentary on QAnon. Uh, Ron Watkins uh, is the 8chan administrator who's been accused of sort of seizing control of Q and having been the voice of Q for the past few years. Well, now Ron, who previously lived in Japan, uh, last week he announced that he was running for a house seat in Arizona. You know, this struck some people as pretty unusual. He again, lived in Japan. I mean, this is a guy who is inviting journalists to join him at brothels. Not exactly the kind of guy you think might be popping in a rural Arizona uh, Republican-leaning seat. So I, I, I talked to him on Monday about his plans. And would it surprise you to learn that Ron does not appear to be like a super... Uh, I don't think he's going to be necessarily that effective of a candidate. You mean he's not going to be writing uh, legislation in the form of Q-drops, right? Like uh, <laughs> House Bill 17, uh, Project Mockingbird, Deep State, everything's in brackets. Just to sort of set the stage here. So Ron is running. Uh, this is a battleground seat uh, that's expected to be redistricted to be more heavily Republican. It's currently held by a Democrat named Tom O'Halloran. And they have some 
seemingly some pretty decent Republicans already in the race uh, in terms of primary candidates. There's a state rep. There's a former Navy SEAL whose company makes what he describes as uh, badass bottle openers. And he has a, you know, his campaign ad is him getting a tattoo. So, you know, I mean, these are guys who, you know, in in the current Republican Party will probably do a little better than Ron. But nevertheless, Ron is kind of trying to be a sort of button down candidate. He was saying, you know, like, I I know a lot about the district. Like, for example, like, I know the stuff that happens on the Indian reservation is messed up. It's bad. And it's like, well, it doesn't really seem like you're necessarily that deep on the issues, to be honest. But so, yeah, so I had this interview with him and I said, you know, it, it was with him and his campaign manager, who's a science fiction author who, you know, I, I thought this was maybe like some campaign operative, but it's like, oh, no, he just this is a guy who hosts a podcast about aliens with Ron. It's extremely on the nose. <laughs> this guy is sort of the, the the David Axelrod of this operation. Ron is kind of trying to distance himself from QAnon. He's saying, you know, he denies that he's ever posted his Q. But nevertheless, I said, well, look, I mean, next weekend, you're going to this QAnon event called the Patriot Double Down in Vegas. Uh, and this is the sequel to the Dallas QAnon convention. And his his campaign manager kind of gets, gets uh, some umbrage. And he's like, hold up, hold up. Who said this is a QAnon convention? And I said, well, you know, it's run by a guy named QAnon John. And the campaign manager goes like, well, you know, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Got me there. And he said, well, you know, I don't know why that guy's called QAnon John. That could mean anything. And I said, well, you know, on the poster, they've got a big Q and they got a 17, which is, of course, a big deal, uh, you know, because Q is the 17th letter of the alphabet. So it's kind of QAnon code. And then Ron just says very sort of cryptically, he says, the number 17 is just an auspicious number. And then his campaign manager goes, Ron, Ron, oh, God. (laughs) <laughs> like you're just like you're blowing this, man. So I don't know. I, I I don't think Congressman Ron Watkins is in our future. The worst part of me really, really wants to see him in a primary debate. Just put him on stage, you know. I mean, let's let's just hash this out. <laughs> I do think it should be interesting. I mean, particularly. I think there's a lot of material that if you really that if the candidates felt Ron was like a real threat that that, that I think there, there's a lot of videos that they could pull out. But but I actually did talk to a a Republican consultant out there who's very familiar with the race, and he was just he said Ron's race is good for a, his campaign's good for a laugh. I mean this guy was very dismissive. He said this new guy getting in the race has no chance of winning. No chance. Let me say that again. No chance. And the way I mean, it kind of was like I was like bothering this guy. He's like, what? You know, get off my get off my phone. It is interesting on one hand because we have the you know the guy who is allegedly behind Q. You know, getting to this point where he's he's attempting to run for office despite only recently moving back to the United States. On the other hand, you know, it seems like he's going to just bl- get obliterated. You know, but then on on the other hand, you know, sure, certainly should be something to watch. Right. Especially like any fundraising they do. Right. Because I, I feel like that's kind of the, the crux here. It's no, he's not going to win. Yes, he can accept donations from people all over the country. So, I mean, here's hoping he files his FEC disclosures nicely. I'd like to see that. Well, this is going to be the classic, you know, a, a lot of times with these sort of candidates, they just don't file their FEC disclosures. True. You know, and then the <laughs> FEC has to chase them down because you, you do get excited. It's like, oh, who donated? And then it's like, well, the answer is you will never know because they won't file. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the other thing, though, is like, you know, his campaign manager was like, you look, man, like QAnon people love this guy. Like, you know, this is going to be great. We're going to raise a ton of money. But the issue is QAnon people typically don't believe that Ron is Q. I mean, they don't think this random guy in Japan was Q because then who would care? Uh, and, and so they think either that he's a deep state agent set up to embarrass QAnon or they think that he is kind of like a like a henchman of Q. So 
there's not like a ton of love for him, even within the QAnon world. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's really running the Telegram constituency right now. He's not involved in in hate coon. It's just the, it's kind of the can rattling on uh, on Telegram and. Wow, he's banned pretty much everywhere, everywhere else. Twitter. Uh, well, it's sort of like you know. Sometimes you just spend so much time on Telegram, and it's like I have a hundred thousand followers. I think I can run for Congress. <laughs> Are two thirds of them bots? Yes, doesn't matter. <laughs> so one other fresh hell item coming up over the horizon is a hot case in Colorado, and I think Sidney Powell has something to say about it. Yeah, this is some bonus fresh hell. So one of the great fascinations of this 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 field that, that we cover is when, you know, people make stuff up for so long and so long, and then suddenly someone's like, hey, wait, are there consequences for lying? Can I sue you for this? Uh, you know, we see, see this happen with Alex Jones and the Sandy Hook case, and now we're seeing it happen with the people who made a lot of stuff up about Dominion voting system stealing the election, and specifically about this one Dominion voting engineer named Eric Coomer. And there's a great story in the New York Times Magazine about this guy's case. But basically, this was some random guy who had posted this thing on Facebook called the Antiguan Antifa manifesto, but it was sort of a satirical thing that was like, you know, yes, I am anti-fascist because I don't like fascism. You know, whatever. It's kind of Facebook copy pasta type stuff, right? But nevertheless, they seized on this as like proof that this guy was uh, an Antifa agent. And in in sort of a, a plot line that that has been one of my favorites, uh, kind of this right wing character no one had heard of named Joe Oltman claimed that he had infiltrated Antifa ahead of the election. And, and listen to an Antifa conference call in which they said, a man named Eric said, don't worry, I've rigged the election, uh, you know, effectively. Does Joe Altman have a recording of the Antifa conference call, the Antifa WebEx? No, of course not. But nevertheless, uh, this was sort of seized on as a great moment. So a lot of people promoted this Joe Altman guy and his attacks on Eric Coomer. And now a lot of them, including Sidney Powell and Joe Altman, are getting sued in Colorado by Eric Coomer. And this is the the case that's just dem- just generating a ton of depositions. Rudy Giuliani got deposed. But then they finally, the defendants had their chance to depose Eric Coomer. And this is a guy who seems like an all right guy. And they're just really desperate to sort of smear this guy with anything they have. And so, for example, he has a tattoo of a, uh, I believe, Francis Bacon uh, painting of a, a pope in the electric chair, maybe not to my taste, but nevertheless, uh, and so they've made a big deal out of this. Now, does the tattoo say, I'm going to rig the election? No, it does not. Sidney Powell's lawyer had this exchange in the deposition that I want to highlight. Uh, Kelly, are you familiar with the rap group uh, NWA? I am, in fact, yeah. Right, so, <laughs> okay, so so then you might, you might rig the election yourself. Okay, so here's the deposition. So Eric Coomer posted, fuck the police. He posted it on Facebook. And this is kind of going into the evidence that he rigged the election. And so her lawyer says, so the next one is NWA. Do you know what that acronym stands for? And of course, it would be the N-word. And he's kind of pressuring him to say the N-word. He's like, I'm not going to say the N-word out loud. And then the guy says, oh, you can just say the N-word. So you're willing to say fuck, but not the N-word. Is that what you're saying? It keeps escalating. And so he says, that's why you think you should say fuck the police? And Eric Coomer says, yes. And he says, okay. And then it says the motherfucking villain that's mad. You think the cops are motherfucking villains? So, you, you know, he's kind of going through these uh, these rap lyrics. The implication being that if you think the police, maybe they get up to some bad stuff, or if you enjoy the musical silence of NWA, perhaps this is a sign that you rigged the election. This sounds just like a, like a dramatic reading of like Ice Cube lyrics, right? Like something you do in 2013 and you just kind of read rap lyrics in a poetic voice like you're doing slam poetry. That's exactly what's going on here. But it's there's a court reporter. The 2013, you know, when a guy, when a white guy might grab an acoustic guitar down in Brooklyn 
and do uh, like Baby Got Back, uh, you know, in a very sweet voice. <laughs> it's, it's sort of the successor to that. But, you know, this is a very interesting case. And I think it's like these guys are just straining so hard to find any evidence that the election was stolen, that that they're just like going through this guy's Facebook posts, these really banal sort of like um, pretty like typical liberal Facebook comments. Uh, meanwhile, the this Joel Oltman guy is really spiraling. I mean, he's, you know, on the hook for potentially millions of dollars in this lawsuit. And, you know, he's recording these videos. He's like, the judge is, you know, throwing me under the bus. Oh, the judge is a communist or the judge is Antifa. And, you know, look, judges don't really love that. This case is heating up and it's one to watch. And, and hopefully, I don't know, maybe they'll call the members of NWA to the stand to explain who truly is the motherfucking villain. Hell yes. Wait, can I can, can I give you a little bonus thing? I actually called Joe, uh, Joe Oltman yesterday. He posted about it on Telegram. I know I know you called him because yeah, he was like that's right. the Daily Beast Kelly Weil. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And so he's he, he's going on about like he's like I called her a liar and what's funny is that he didn't record his phone call with the Antifa, but I did record the phone call and he didn't say that at all. <laughs> so yeah, we, we've got some great recall going on there. That's great. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.